Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, I'll be speaking with David Sneed, Vice President and Analyst with the Responsible Investment Team of BMO Global Asset Management in London. We're going to discuss how responsible investment works at BMO GAM, how BMO GAM is engaging with their investments and invested companies on sustainability topics, and some real-world examples of projects that they're working on to integrate sustainability into their investment approach. In part two of this episode, David will host a conversation with James Coldwell from ShareAction, which is an NGO that collaborates with David's team on a number of ESG issues, including promoting better labor standards through investment engagement. So in introducing David, I thought it would be good to get a little bit of background about him and what he does at BMO. I work within BMO GAM's responsible investment team. Um, BMO GAM, just a quick bit of background. We have about 328 billion in assets uh, with four hubs uh, around the world in Toronto, Chicago, London, which is where I'm based, and Hong Kong. We invest in a wide variety of asset classes. And I work within the responsible investment team. We're a centrally based team, uh, predominantly based in London. And really, we're a sort of central resource and sort of center of excellence for the ESG work that we do. David, why is BMO GAM interested in responsible investment? At BMO Global Asset Management, we have a long heritage when it comes to responsible investment. Uh, we've been working in the field for, for over 34 years now. And I think it's worth just stepping back and looking at this big picture of the world in which we operate. And actually, as of today, but also increasingly over the next few decades, the world is going to be facing significant sustainability challenges. And the point is, is that business and life are not disconnected. The investment world and the companies we invest in are not isolated uh, from those challenges. And our role as an asset manager, as an allocator of capital, uh, we need to take these challenges seriously. And I think that's got two parts to it. Firstly, society has an impact on the companies in which we invest. So when it comes to serving our clients, we're looking to protect their capital. And we want to be sure that sustainability is considered as part of our investment process to be sure that we're understanding how these companies operate in within these issues. But the second part of that is also flipping it. Companies have an impact on society. So we see our role within responsible investment is actually to also influence companies and to be sure that those in which we're investing are either looking to address these challenges or at the very least, they're not in the business of making them worse. And what does your responsible investment team do to integrate sustainability at BMO GAM? I'll probably put it in, in three main buckets, which kind of summarizes the different areas in which we work. So the first one is our stakeholders are both our internal fund managers, who we look after both our responsible fund range, but also uh, any, really, any fund in any of our asset classes. Uh, in addition to that, we also have dedicated external clients who we provide ESG information and work for to help with their own uh, ESG work. 
that falls into a variety of different areas. I think I would summarize our core function as a team really as is the following three. So firstly, we look after ESG and just to break down the lingo a bit, that stands for environmental, social and governance research and integration. We look at ESG trends on both a macro level, uh, which may look at big trends in the world, whether that be seismic things that affect all of us, such as climate change, or maybe something that's a little bit more specific to a region such as for example new data regulation in Europe but also we deal with the micro so we deal with sectors we also deal with specific companies uh, looking at how ESG issues uh, are prevalent at those companies and we're really a centralized resource for helping our fund managers uh, understand the risks um, but also producing research that can kind of help look for the opportunities too. In addition to that, we also do engagement on behalf of BMO GAM. Engagement, when I define that, most of the time can look like us actually believing that we should be speaking with the companies in which we invest. And actually, rather than just kind of keeping relationship going, we think that as an investor in these companies, we have an opportunity to have influence on them and actually to push for better ESG performance at these companies, particularly where in turn we think that is going to reflect material really on how good these are as investments, whether that be increasing opportunities or whether that be uh, reducing the level of risk. And so we want to use our influence as an investor to actually be sure that we're talking to companies and guiding them in kind of these different directions. And then finally, uh, the, the third kind of pillar of what we do, I'd summarize it as our proxy voting work. So as a holder in equities and fixed income, we are entitled to vote pretty regularly with regards to equities, less frequently with fixed income. And actually, we see it as an important part of having our formal say on various ways in which companies run themselves. We actually get to have an influence by voting certain directions. It's also a very good tool for opening a channel of communication with companies and that's something we've been doing for a while now. Just to put this in perspective, uh, we voted just under 10,000 meetings in 2018 against our own in-house policy and, and the view we like to do. And we did a lot of engagement around a lot of those meetings. So that's, that's also another kind of big pillar of how we work. David, how would you define responsible investment? I think it's important to see where we are today is to really understand also where we've where we've come from. I think if we were to look back a few decades now, particularly around the 80s with apartheid uh, in South Africa, and we had investors first starting to think a little bit about the implications of applying uh, certain principles and values uh, more broadly um, across their investment portfolios. And by extension, some other parts of the investment world have been doing this for a little while with regards to more faith-based investors and those who had certain uh, ideological views of what they were looking to support with their capital and what they wished to avoid. So going back many decades, we kind of saw this birth out of a very much exclusionary based approach where it was a case of actually, I don't want to be liable or I don't want to be responsible for being involved with those companies. But actually often it would stop there. So it would be a case of excluding, uh, let's say the classics in stocks with regards to alcohol, gambling, tobacco, but actually going beyond that, it wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily go much further further. Then kind of moving on forward a little bit, and I think particularly we saw this around the formation of the UNPRI, uh, the Principles for Responsible Investment, for which 
BMOGAM, um, or rather it's as it was formerly known, FNC, was actually one of 10 asset managers involved with the formal founding of that organization. And what that was really looking to do was twofold. Uh, firstly, introduce consideration of ESG much more into how uh, research and investment decisions are made, actually trying to understand the issues that affect companies from an ESG perspective and integrate that into the process to be sure that we're best serving our clients ultimately by taking into everything account that can affect the value of these companies. But then in addition to that, uh, there was a degree and an obligation for stewardship introduced. Stewardship's this idea of you don't want to be the absentee landlord just to own something and take the value but never do anything with it. Actually, there's a responsibility there for being interested, for nurturing something, for taking responsibility for how something that you own as an investor, actually how, how it performs and what it does within the world and, and how it behaves. And so we saw that kind of birth around kind of the mid 2000s. That organization today actually has uh, over 1600 uh, signatories. So it's been very uh, successful in the over 10 years since it was established. And we're certainly proud to, to be involved in that. Kind of where we've seen kind of things move to now is there's a, there's a lot more formality around not just the case of what I would call a very much avoiding strategy. We don't want to necessarily be invested where we think we shouldn't be due to certain ESG considerations and a sort of improving strategy whereby as an owner, as an investor, we can actually have an influence here and we should do that. Actually, we're now moving into an area and getting much more establishment around this idea of impact, which is the capital that we're providing to these companies, it's not just a question of uh, what returns are we getting, what financial return is there, but actually for the money that we put in, what is there in terms of uh, the actual impact, almost the non-financial, the ESG return that we get. So we've seen this particularly formalized lately around the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is very much a powerful communication tool whereby the sort of development agenda over the next up to 2030 of all of the world's governments minus a few has been formalized in a set of goals and and by extension a set of targets and a roadmap has been set for really the government the international government agenda for how they want the world to look in the future and that is on such a grand scale that actually that has a lot of bearing and investors have a big part to play in ensuring that they are funding that, that that's something that they uh, are taking involvement in. And uh, and I think that's where we are now. We get, we get increasing demands on us to actually, from investors, not just know what the return of a fund is, for example, but actually the companies within that fund, what are they doing? How is it aligned to this bigger picture of where the world is going? And uh, what, what kind of impact are we having for the money that's kind of going in? And can you tell us a little bit more about how exactly you would integrate environmental, social and governance considerations into your investment decision making? Yeah, sure. Let me put some uh, meat on the bones a little bit of of this phrase ESG. As I said earlier, it, it breaks down into environmental, social and governance. And actually, even those buckets are quite broad. Uh, so and some examples of environmental. Um, now, some of them are obviously are quite obvious. So for example, climate change is one where 
we've already felt it. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you on a very, very hot day in London right now. Um, but actually more broader than that, we are going to be seeing the whole concept of how our economies work drastically change over the next uh, next decades as we transition to a lower carbon economy. And that's going to have big implications on certain sectors. It's going to have implications on all sectors to some extent. And so this is one where we, this big theme, how do we boil that down into something that's a little bit more tangible and understandable, specific to regions, to to sectors, and actually going beyond that to specific companies. Moving on to the S, traditionally we would put labour issues in this particular particular bucket, and, and traditionally that's looked a lot at, um, for example, labour disruption. Um, but actually beyond that as well, as we look at this generation, they are increasingly expecting a higher level of accommodation for their lifestyle, how they work. Uh, beyond just paying them lots of money. Actually, there's a real interest in the quality of work that's provided by companies. And that is something that is actually going to be very important for how they recruit, retain staff, how they make sure that they've really got the best to be sure that they can keep generating uh, the ideas that effectively fuel the products and the services that these companies provide. Modern slavery's had a lot of focus uh, lately, again, with another statistic. It's calculated that currently 40 million people live in modern slavery. Uh, slavery is not something that is put to the past. Actually, it's something that's still very alive in the world. And actually, that's something that both from exposure standpoint and also from a risk standpoint, uh, companies need to be increasingly aware of and being able to figure out how it is that they can look not just at their own operations, but at their bigger footprint. For example, their supply chain as they go down and look into these different areas, how viable is it that this is something that they may be funding or maybe something under their, their own nose? And then from a societal perspective, one more I would just add is is the area of nutrition. Uh, since 1975, we've seen obesity in the world effectively triple. And actually, there's a real challenge, and I will link this back to the climate change area, of how is it that we have an expanding population, but actually the nutrition and the quality of what people eat is declining. And at the same time, actually traditional supply chains on what people can eat is also going to be subject to scrutiny too. So there's a big question there about about kind of how these things are going to move. And then finally, just touching on the governance I and mean, corporate governance in general, we're often talking to companies to be sure that they're run accountably, to be sure that as an investor, um, our voice is known, um, that, that stakeholders are not marginalised. And I think a lot of the scandals that we've seen lately generally result from, from poor governance failures as things go on within a company and either they are tolerated or sometimes encouraged by bad culture. But actually, by extension, sometimes it's due to a lack of oversight and not fully understanding everything that's going on within their doors. I think more specifically, I'd add one area we've been spending a lot of time lately is looking at uh, gender diversity on boards and kind of diversity more broadly. Uh, this is an area where we've been looking to make sure that we can be playing our part as an investor to really push the agenda and to be sure that uh, we can get closer to something more representative of either who it is that these companies have as their employees, um, who it is that they have as their customers. And we think also just as a good principle to avoid groups think and to be sure that the oversight and boards are as effective as possible um, we've been engaging voting um, and pushing a lot more generally uh, for seeing improvements in these areas in your experience how do companies react when you're engaging with them and asking them questions about their esg performance as an investor 
Can you outline for the audience how that process works? I think it's important to kind of define a little bit about what we would consider engagement to be. I mean, I mean, to be, there's engagement and then there's engagement. I think for effective engagement, really, you need to have a deep understanding of what ESG issues impact a company. You need to be approaching them about something where effectively it's not going to it's not going to surprise them that you want to discuss that subject it's got to be something that you're aware that the company understands is is relevant or at least can has the capacity to understand it's relevant so we need to know the companies well and and know the issues i think another important part is we need to be able to speak to the right people and that can often engagement can sometimes be quite a nuanced thing sometimes there are there are levels within a company you may want to speak to sometimes it may actually be seniority of a board member that's important although you can't necessarily always get into the weeds with someone who's really more in an oversight capacity sometimes you actually want to talk to the guy who actually looks after something specifically within the business um, and the operational specialists. So sometimes that's more appropriate. So kind of knowing where to go. But I'd say the big picture of how we operate is most of our engagement is really based on long-term relationship building where we try to earn the trust of the companies uh, in which we invest and we want them to understand that actually we're agreed at least in terms of the big picture of we what we both want the company to be successful we may have some disagreement over what the pathway to success might look like but that is certainly something that we can agree on um so for us, really, engagement, it, it, it's looking to add value. It's not just a tick box exercise. And I think kind of going in with that kind of mindset, that kind of helps. In terms of kind of how it operates, it's probably best almost to talk a little bit about what engagement isn't for us as opposed to what it is. So for us, engagement isn't necessarily always activist, confrontational shaming in the press or jumping up and down and, and, and making a, a big noise because that's quite a good way to get yourself marginalized and, and to, to effectively get yourself ignored. As I said, it's much more about long-term relationship building, that trust and confidentiality. And really, we want them to see it as a partnership, both with a common interest in where we get to. I think also it's important to know that we're, we're rarely telling companies something new when we approach them with something that they might want to talk about. So it might be actually the purpose of our, our engagement is to push something up the agenda at a company. If there's someone within the company who may be thinking, oh, we should really be doing X or we're not quite as good at doing this as maybe our, some of our peers. It's not necessarily the case that they have the voice to actually push that as a change. Actually, for us as investors and, and outsiders to the business, if we can communicate to management or the board, this issue is important, we want to know what you're doing about it, that almost gives legitimacy to those internally who may already be trying to, to kind of move in that kind of area. I think a good example, I don't know, Michael, if you saw that film Inception from a few years ago, and I like to think of myself as a little bit of like Leonardo DiCaprio, this idea of we go into the company and actually we're just trying to kind of plant an idea and it might not necessarily be where we ultimately want to get to, but actually we want to influence, and but we want it to feel like it's something that the companies own and it's something that they're driving because ultimately they're the best to do so. Now, it might be that we're the ones who went in and said, actually, have you looked at this area or we think you're vulnerable here or have you thought about this over here? But in terms of where that goes to, that's something we definitely want the company to have a role in. And we're not there to come along and just tell them how to run their business per se. We're in there to be an influence and that to kind of be a somewhat longer step process. 
What can you tell us about some of the projects you're working on now? I know that BMO GAM is really trying to be at the cutting edge of sustainability topics. What has your attention right now? Yes, certainly. So we've got several projects currently underway and they're in a variety of areas. I think two of the ones I would particularly highlight for this year is the first one's looking at the area of antimicrobial resistance. And this is an area which we see as very relevant to the current global public health debate, particularly in relation to uh, the reliance within uh, the food supply chain on antibiotics has led to a degree of resistance which actually could potentially lead to serious public health issues uh, if these antibiotics are no longer effective going forward. So we see that kind of big societal issue and then we've decided to boil that down to something that's actually relevant to the stakeholders directly involved with this kind of area. So for us, we're particularly discussing that with pharmaceutical companies, also those involved with meat and dairy production and also food retailers to better understand, firstly, is this something they're aware of? What are their thoughts? Um, What collaboration are we seeing between all the different parties in the stakeholder chain to be sure that uh, effective strategy can be implemented? But also actually trying to understand a bit more about how we can influence these companies to be proactive players in slowing down the development and spread of antimicrobial resistance. What it is that they can do now to effectively avoid a much more costly and serious potential disaster that can happen in the future for which they may well be liable Uh, potentially, but also I think just from a societal impact um, and as being stewards of the work that they do to better make sure that that they're equipped there. I think one other project I would just point out for this year is in the subject of climate change. As you can imagine, our climate change work has been going for um, well over a decade now. And actually the focus we get a lot more these days is really sectoral in understanding how particular parts of the economy are going to be better reflecting that. So one of the areas we're particularly looking at at present is uh, marine transport, which accounts for around 2% of global GHG emissions every year. And although the carbon intensity by the amount of freight it transport is quite low, the average CO2 intensity compared to the sales of these companies is actually one of the highest. So as we look at our portfolios and we look at a variety of ways of monitoring our carbon footprints, these companies are quite regularly kind of standing out as very much outliers in terms of the revenue that they generate and actually the amount of carbon they release in order to do so. And actually, when it comes to, to carbon, that's actually just, just the light touch for them because, of course, they're using very low-grade fuel. And so we get a lot of sulfuric, sulfuric oxides and, and nitrogen oxides emissions and things that you know are quite serious to the quality of water and also air as well. So I think what we were looking to do with this project is actually better understand the companies within this sector, what they are doing to get somewhat ahead of the curve of what we see as actual genuine potential disruption for that industry. I think we're going to get to a point as governments move forward with climate change agendas and and this transition where we have a serious risk of this whole sector becoming vastly antiquated and actually not fit for purpose for actually maintaining um, the work that they do in the current logistic network. And actually, these 
you know, to pun the pun, but we, you know, turning a tanker in these ways is not something that happens quite quickly. It's it's a very slow process developing new technologies. So we think the conversation, even though the risk is actually quite a long way away in some respects to when it's material, the investments need to happen now and the developments need to happen now to better make sure that these companies um, are going to be equipped and going to be relevant. So that's going to be in the form of investing in new technologies, uh, also looking at how they're reducing emissions as of right now. And I think overall, better understanding how these companies can communicate to shareholders, how they're actually looking at climate change overall, how that implements with their strategy, how is it that the board is looking at the issue and overseeing this big picture of where these companies are going to go, and actually understanding kind of a, a a positive public policy position on this too, um, to be sure that the industry is not going to actively be lobbying against moving forward and cleaning up the oceans and then climate change policies, but actually we want them to be progressive and on the front foot and really seeing the opportunity that's here. Would you ever collaborate with other investors or asset managers on this type of work that we've been discussing? What are some of the avenues for collaboration or industry associations or other types of projects that you work on? Yeah, collaboration is an important tool within our toolbox. Uh, We find that actually as we are talking to companies and trying to influence them as we are raising points with them, that can often be amplified and made more effective if, if the company is shown that it is not just us that might have that opinion. If something is important to a collection of their investors and not just one, then they're more likely to listen to that and potentially respond off the back of that. Um, It's also a very good tool for us for information sharing, although in the asset management world we're often competing for uh, clients, actually we find increasingly in the responsible investment world there is a high level of collaboration, information sharing and experience that we share with our peers because ultimately we're all trying to achieve a very similar objective when it comes to improving the companies in which we're all invested. So that can take the form of either directly reaching out and collaborating with other investors who we know are also thinking the same things we are and invested in the companies in which we are trying to engage. On top of that as well, there are organizations out there that have been very effective at bringing investors together, providing a platform whereby they can do this in a more organized way. So one of the largest ones that we've seen over the last few years is the Climate Action 100+. Plus which is currently standing at a staggering $34 trillion in assets under management with all those that have signed up and effectively looking to engage with a set of companies to discuss climate change, to move forward with that agenda that we have there. And we found that's been a very effective way to push through change. We also use it in other areas as well, uh, not just climate change, but other parts and and other research topics that we look at. We find that uh, organizations who bring investors together Um, can be very effective for us in getting the results that we're really looking to achieve. If you'd like more information about BMO GAM's Responsible Investment Program, you can visit our podcast website at bmo.com slash sustainability leaders, where we have a notes page that will provide more information. You'll find the team's annual reports and a number of ways to explore this topic further. I'll now turn the podcast over to David, who, as host, will interview James Coldwell from ShareAction. For the second half of our podcast today, we wanted to take a moment to speak with another organization that collaborates with investors like us on ESG issues. 
My guest today is James Coldwell from the NGO Share Action to talk to us about their advocacy work on promoting better labour standards through the Workforce Disclosure Initiative. Great to have you with us, James. Maybe you could just start by telling us a bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, so I'm James Coldwell. I work at uh, Share Action. Share Action is a responsible investment NGO that's been in operation for over 12 years now. And we're committed to building the movement for responsible investment. We are headquartered in London and we have now over 50 staff, the vast majority of which are here in London. And we have a couple of people in Brussels working on EU policy matters. Our focus of work divides down into three main areas. We have a a movement building team. So we work with civil society organisations in Europe who are having an interest in responsible investment. We work with charitable foundations to help them uh, as a group to try to better align their investments with their charitable mission. And we also have an element of grassroots uh, movement building whereby we encourage individual savers to take a direct interest in where their pension funds are invested. And we also encourage people to attend company AGMs to ask questions of the senior leadership of the institutions that we're all uh, invested in through our pensions. We have a, a policy and research team. So we engage regularly with policymakers and regulators, primarily in the UK, but, but increasingly at the, the level of the European Union. Uh, and then we have a, a big focus of our work looks at driving corporate change uh, and the, the programmes which engage with corporations, again, split into to three main groupings. We have a, a public health focus to our work, which is looking specifically at the sort of sugar content within food that's, that's targeted and advertised to children in, in particular. There is a, a lot of climate work. We have a, a very big climate team. And then the third area of our corporate engagement work looks at the topic of decent work, uh, which is where the Workforce Disclosure Initiative sits. And the Workforce Disclosure Initiative is the programme that, that I work on directly. You said that one of your areas of focus is decent work. Maybe you can just flesh that out for us. What do you really mean by decent work? So we consider decent work to be jobs where employees are are safe, where they are free from any form of discrimination, where they have a direct say and some direct control over the decisions that affect them at work, where they are free to organise, if that's what they wish to do, and of course where they are decently paid and that they receive a wage that enables them to to live uh, to to an acceptable standard. One of the Sustainable Development Goals, SDG 8, looks to achieve decent work and economic growth that's broad-based. And this is therefore an increasing area of focus for investors, for civil society. I think it is incumbent on companies that are huge, multinational, powerful organisations to do more to provide decent work. And I think there is broad consensus among 
politicians, among civil society, and increasingly among investors as well, to 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 want to promote decent work. I think a number of the investor signatories like the WDI because originally they actually wanted to to run the WDI as, a, as an in-house programme, but very quickly realised that it was a huge undertaking and that it would require a collaborative effort and a, a, a sort of a standalone entity to, to operate it. There's increasing evidence that links the way that companies treat their staff with long-term financial performance. And I think whereas, you know, we are an NGO and so we are a primarily a, a mission-driven organisation and therefore we think that it's incumbent on companies to provide decent jobs because it's the, the right thing to do. Investors, I think, increasingly agree with the outcome that we're trying to get. But I think, obviously, from an investor point of view, their, their main motivation is that it's, it's good business as, as, as well as the right thing to do. We've known you guys for a while, but the Workforce Disclosure Initiative is certainly what we've been working on more lately with you. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about the WDI? Yes, so the Workforce Disclosure Initiative, or WDI, is an investor-backed programme to encourage listed companies to disclose better quality and more comparable data on their directly employed staff and supply chain workers. Uh, and it's we have a, a coalition of over 130 institutional investors that are supporting the programme. And the WDI is centred around an annual survey, which is sent out to listed companies. And it asks them to report on a number of topics that uh, they are currently, in a general sense, not, not doing, or at least not doing in any kind of comparable or consistent way. The investor signatories to the WDI receive access to all the data that companies submit on an annual basis and they also receive access to disclosure scorecards which we introduced for the first time last year in 2018 that give an indication of the amount of data that companies are reporting compared to their their peer group. The programme is funded by DFID, the UK Department for International Development, and they have been the sole funder, in fact, of the programme uh, since it was launched in 2017. We have two international partners. We're partnering with SHARE, that's the Shareholder Association for Research and Education in, in Canada, so they're our North American partner. And then we also have a partnership established with RIA, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, and they have, uh, in the last year or so, been a, a huge help in helping the WDI to take hold uh, in in Australasia. And when you say investor backed, what is it that investors bring to the table, and how can they help you with your work? Among the 130 institutional investors that support the WDI, there is a, a very broad range of institution uh, among that. So, so that includes. Uh, most of the largest uh, asset managers, certainly in, in Europe, so the likes of Legal in General and Amundi are supporting it. But then that goes all the way through to quite small charitable foundations that have a very specific 
ethos and, and mission. So it's a very broad coalition of, of institutional investors. But I think what we have, have found is that by having such a large group of institutional investors, that really does add to the clout of the, the request to, to companies. I think it may well be the case that, that some companies would, would want to ignore what we're, what we're asking them. And if we were simply a, a, an NGO that, that wrote them a letter once a year, that might be quite easy for them to do. But the fact that this request is coming on an annual basis from, in many cases, their largest shareholders means that it's something that they, they do have to uh, engage with. And we're finding that, that lots of companies are starting to, to look at this really seriously. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the survey itself. What does it explicitly cover and, and what information is it that you're not seeing published uh, out in the world that you're actually asking for? And I guess pulling out from that, it would be good to hear what you think about the role of publishing data and how it is that it can help you achieve this goal of decent work. In terms of the, the, the survey itself, it is a deliberately broad and quite comprehensive document and I think companies are unanimous in agreeing that the survey is is, is challenging. I think they're very, they have very different reactions to how they want to approach that challenge which perhaps we can talk about a little bit a little bit later. but the, the survey itself is divided into into 10 sections. three of those apply exclusively to the supply chain side. For, for companies. Five sections look at uh, direct operations, and then there are two sections that apply equally to direct operations and supply chain. And I think the reason for having this broad approach is that certainly for the investors that support the WDI, the idea of having an easily accessible go-to platform to compare uh, company data on a range of workforce topics is quite an appealing one. To to a large extent, the WDI, we regularly keep in mind the model of uh, CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, and everything that they've done to mainstream environmental reporting. And we, we have in our mind that a similar platform is needed for uh, for the S of, of ESG. I think also in terms of having such a broad survey that reflects the fact that at the moment at least investors are not necessarily agreed on what the most material factors are for different sectors and different companies. When I talk to institutional investors and when they they look at the survey in detail, the most common refrain I hear from the investors is, wow, this survey looks quite long you should probably reduce its size and then the next sentence they say is but you haven't included these four or five metrics that are really important to us please add those in uh, and and so we're aware of this of this tension but we think aiming to be a comprehensive survey is a good way to go and I think it also means that by, by starting off at, at this quite broad approach that we've developed it will guard against scope creep. I think a lot of the uh, other frameworks that have have been around for a longer time than the WGI, as they've evolved, they've got larger and uh, and more extensive and become more time consuming. 
if at all possible, we're going to operate in the opposite direction. So the, the survey in 2019, for example, contains fewer questions than it did last year. So we want to try and make this an increasingly easy process for company in terms of the time it will actually take them to to respond to this and as we go along we want to make sure that the the survey becomes more refined and more relevant to specific industries so we've started with a a broad approach and we want to sort of narrow in and make it more sector specific as the program develops in in the years to come. The S is often the neglected part of ESG when it comes to the data and overall disclosure. And actually that can often be a real issue with comparative analysis. And I can say that as as an analyst myself. Um, We've seen a a whole raft of legislation come in lately on this area with the SEC asking for more disclosure on human capital management, uh, as well as a focus on modern slavery in the UK. And we've seen a lot of uh, legislative movements in France. Um, Do you feel like this is a good tailwind for you right now with the work that you're doing? Uh, Yes, I think so. I would would agree with with all of that. And yeah, it's certainly the case that the countries where there, there are some of these relatively new legislative requirements there's there's a, a reasonably strong correlation with the, the countries who are more receptive to the WDI and I think France in particular is a is a good example we had a, a stronger response rate from French companies in 2018 than from any other country in the world and I think there are two main reasons for that one is that we do have a large French signatory base, all of the big French asset managers are supporting the WDI. But it's also the case that the, the devoir de vigilance, the law which, which came in, has, has forced companies to, to, to get their, their house in order and to be able to report on many of the topics that the WDI is asking about. So, so yes, yeah, certainly I think this, this does go beyond, you know, it's, it's not just uh, something that's interesting to institutional investors, there are, are clearly many other stakeholders who are interested in the sort of the, the aims and the long-term aims of the, the WDI. We do give companies the option of whether to submit their data on a, on a public basis or, or a private basis. Private means that the data is submitted to, uh, to us as share action, the WDI team, as well as our international partners and to the investor signatories. But companies are also encouraged now. We, 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 we tell companies we would prefer them to submit this on a public basis. And we can see from the, the number of downloads of this public data that, it, that there are many, many other stakeholders beyond just investors that are, that are looking at this. Uh, we've, we've had downloads of the data from a number of civil society organisations, from various consultants, from uh, companies who are obviously looking at this, and and from trade unions as well. So, so there are a number of uh, of stakeholders that are, I think, willing the WDI to succeed. And of course, it's important to to note that that there are many other actors that are that are looking to improve workforce reporting in in one way. Or another. Some of them are more focused on a, a particular jurisdiction. Some of them look specifically at human rights impacts rather than the, the broader approach that, that we take. But there are many other frameworks that, that are out there and, and, we, and we do work 
closely to collaborate where we can and also where we can to make sure that that our that our questions are are aligned with uh, with some of the other requests that companies are, are receiving a lot of wdi's work is based on disclosure and scoring whereas what we're really talking about here is actually workplace practices and how people structure their business uh, rather than really how they talk about their business so why this focus on disclosure how does that drive the change that you're looking to achieve at the companies I think at, at the most basic level, we, we believe that by encouraging companies to be more transparent, that that will lead to a, a, a race to the top. Um, but even if that is a, a belief that's not going to be, to be borne out necessarily on its own, by engaging with the WDI and, and other, other frameworks and and becoming more transparent, that allows companies to hold themselves comparable to their peer group. If companies start to report hard data on a, a number of the metrics that the WDI is asking them to do, that will allow them to, to prove in a more convincing way that they are outperforming their peer group than they can ever hope to achieve in a 300-page glossy sustainability report that contains a lot of anecdotal evidence but no hard data and I think we're also finding already that the the WDI data although it's still at a very early stage of its development it's already helping to inform uh, engagement conversations between investors and companies uh, and it helps to I think close the gap between where companies are and where investors think they are. And by closing that gap, that means that there can be a much more meaningful conversation that in some cases was, was much more difficult um, a couple of, couple of years ago. And James, thinking more long term, where would you like to see the WDI in five years time, say, and uh, what would you have liked for it to have achieved over that time? It's a really good question and one that we think about quite regularly. I think we've all been quite surprised and quite pleased with how the WGI has grown in the two and a bit years it's been in existence. And we would certainly hope that 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 growth continues over the next five years. I do think we've become, in the UK, quite a recognised reporting framework now. I, th- I think it's it's quite likely that a majority of the FTSE 100 will respond to the WDI this year. If we can get that level of, of uptake from companies across the world, I think we'll be doing we'll be doing very, very well. I think, and I'm speaking personally here, I, I think right now the, the number of people and institutions that are working on these topics is very, very encouraging. I would hope that five years hence, there will be a greater degree of not necessarily consolidation of, of these organisations all merging into one, but I, I think there should be a, a greater degree of consensus as to the, the types of questions that we're, that we're asking of companies and, and the expectations that we're, that we're putting on them. And ultimately, the, the WDI, it's, it's not about just holding companies accountable and getting them to 
report more data for the sake of it. It is about driving better working practices. And I think this is clearly a, a way of working that, that has many, many steps to it. But I think five years from now, we would certainly want to be able to point to a number of concrete changes that companies have made uh, as part of their engagement with the WDI survey and the interactions that they've had with the WDI team and, and of course, with the, with the investor signatories. Great. Well, thank you, James, for joining us today. We do appreciate you taking the time to talk this over with us and we wish you every success. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.